Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. 2020 was the year of the electric vehicle upstart with companies like Lordstown Motors, XL Fleet, Canoe, Nikola, Hylian, Fisker, and more all coming public via SPACs, as well as several Chinese companies coming public via traditional IPO. Tesla surged 743% in 2020 and now holds an 800 billion dollar market cap. But this week, though, we're looking elsewhere in the auto industry. Industry Focus listener Al wrote us into industryfocusatfool.com to ask if we could do a deep dive on some more underfollowed areas of the auto industry. And that's just what we're going to do this week. This week, auto specialist John Rosevere joins the show to tell us about two of these underappreciated parts of the auto market. John, welcome back on the podcast. Great to be here, Nick, as always. Yeah, it's always exciting news um, in the auto industry. Lots to talk about uh, uh, this week. One thing I just wanted to mention off the top before uh, before we get into the show, I got I got some listener email saying, "Hey, why didn't you talk about uh, the college football game uh, last week?" You know, some folks like it when me and Jason talk about uh, college football a little bit. Thought I'd talk about you know Alabama um, won the national championship this week. Was just telling folks on our, our full live recording who are who are watching us live, available to all uh, uh, Motley Fool members about you know I, I'm a big college football fan. I've been watching college football uh, uh, my whole life. But uh, and obviously that that's entertaining to me as, as something I, I just do for fun. But as an investor, there's always some lessons that we can get uh, um, from folks who are great at what they do in their industry. And I think Nick Saban is is one of these folks that you know uh, a lot of folks would say is the best to ever do uh, you know college football uh, coaching. And I think so, some of the things about his process would be super useful. Um, for investors. So one of the things he always talks about is focus on the process. So so don't focus on, all right, I'm going out to win a national championship this year. I'm going to go double my stock market portfolio or what have you. What are the things that I need to do to have a successful team? So like for my quarterback, what are the, what are the skills he needs to have, the things that he needs to focus on, the exercises he needs to do uh, to be successful? We can do those same things as an investor, not, you know, okay, I want to have these results. What are the things I need to do every day uh, to make sure I'm on the right path? And then each each time you make a decision, you, you look back and, and evaluate that and see where you can improve. So, uh, you know, a lot of lessons we can learn uh, um, from college football. I always like to be able to talk about that uh, a little bit on the show. Um, but kind of to get into our, our, our main topic, John, I've kind of scratched my college football itch, so we won't get any, any mean emails saying I didn't uh, uh, talk about it. Not that I, went to a, I went to a hockey school, so I have nothing to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. But, uh, but yeah, so much we can learn just just from our kind of everyday life. If we pay attention um, as investors, people that are trying to get better every day at what they do, uh, we can do that um, as well. But kind of moving on uh, to these underfollowed areas uh, of the auto industry, lots to talk about there, John. What, what's kind of the first company and sector you want to tell us about today? Well, I want to back up a little bit and say we're going to be talking about a couple of old school auto companies today, one big supplier and one automaker, uh, because uh, there's been so much interest in electric vehicles. Uh, you know, Nick has already talked about the run that Tesla had last year. Uh, NIO, uh, which sold 43,000 vehicles last year, Chinese electric vehicle maker, competes with Tesla in China, uh, has a market cap of, at least as of this morning, $95 billion, which is an awful lot for an auto company. Uh, so one of the things we've been hearing from fools is, is more, you know, is there any value? 
value left in the electric vehicle market. Uh, and where we've been looking is at the traditional auto companies that are likely to thrive and expand their bottom lines through this transition to electric connected autonomous vehicles. Uh, one of the companies I want to look at today because it's, it, it's, it's been making some intriguing, aggressive moves. It's a company called Magna International. This is a Canadian company, uh, U.S. traded. The stock ticker is MGA, New York Stock Exchange. Uh, this is the third largest uh, auto industry supplier in the world. They sell all kinds of parts to automakers. Most of the world's automakers are among their clients. Uh, they've been in this business a long time. They're really good at it. Uh, Magna also uh, does what we call contract manufacturing, where you know if you have a car and you don't have the factory space to build it. They have factories in Europe uh, through their subsidiary, Magnastir, S-T-E-Y-R, that can build vehicles. And they've done vehicles for Porsche. They've done them for Jaguar. They've done them for Mercedes and a bunch of other automakers, not just in Europe over the years. Uh, among the vehicles they build uh, is the Jaguar I-Pace, the electric crossover that came out to rave reviews a couple of years ago that was Jaguar Land Rover's first ve uh, electric vehicle. Uh, they have made a big push into this kind of thing. They want to expand that business. Uh, and they're also, I mean, they're, they're also working uh, with a number of efforts to develop self-driving autonomous vehicle, advanced driver assist technology. Uh, among other things, they're, they're supplying hardware infrastructure for that, sort of the mess of cables that connects everything up, which is horrifically complicated in a car with a self-driving system or an advanced driver assist system. They've staked out a number of, I, I cite that as just one example to note that they've staked out a number of uh, places in this in this emerging field where they're going to be uh, a dominant player, if not the dominant player. Uh, their connections to all the world's big automakers, as well as some of the up-and-coming automakers, uh, will help them as well. Fisker, which is one of the startups that went public via a SPAC last year based in California, uh, former Aston Martin chief designer, has, has designed uh, an electric crossover SUV that they think they can sell around $40,000. Magna is going to build it. And, and, you know, this is this is an important piece of business. They've got business coming for They've got, you know, other negotiations underway with companies that want to enter this space, uh, you know, to be what you might call the Foxconn of cars. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is a huge growth opportunity for them. They have the demonstrated expertise and 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 facilities to do it. You know, if you're Fisker, you can spend one to two billion dollars and a year to two years building your own factory, or you can hire Magna. Uh, and and they will, you know, do a lot of this for you. I mean, you'll have to pay for some of the costs, of course, but it won't be as much. Uh, you will give up some margin to do that. But, you know, to get up and going for an early stage company, this is a tremendous thing that they can provide. Yeah, John, you, you, you talk about some of this contract manufacturing opportunity. I just wanted to back up uh, a little bit on, on just kind of the role suppliers make, how, how Magna fits in today and kind of where, where things are, are going in the future. So you talk about they're one of the biggest auto suppliers kind of in the world. So you talk about the size of, the, of this supplier network, why it exists and why it still needs to exist in the same way in kind of this age of electric vehicles, this transition. Car makers can't make every part themselves. Uh, I mean, that business model went out the window decades ago. Uh, it's much more efficient to buy seats from a supplier that makes seats. 
Uh, you know, Lear is a company that does that. Uh, they supply many automakers with seats. They are very good at making seats, which is kind of uh, a little bit of a secret art to making a seat that's comfortable to sit in for hours, uh, that is safe, that incorporates the power features uh, they, that people want now uh, with motors that will last the life of a car and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, there are companies that have mastered some of these esoteric areas, and it just makes sense for a company like General Motors to buy seats, for instance, uh, from an outside supplier. Uh, that's true of lots of tiny little bits and pieces that you will never think of in the life of your vehicle, uh, as well as some subsystems and so forth that are in the car. Magna does a lot of that. Uh, they do body parts. They do powertrain parts for both internal combustion and electric. Uh, they, they do, as I said, active driver assist systems and subsystems that can go into, for instance, a General Motors branded uh, driver assist system may be built uh, partly with Magna hardware and software. Uh, you know, they do mirrors. Uh, they, if your rear view mirror does anything more than reflect light, it was probably built by either Gentex, which is a mirror specialist, or Magna, in fact. Uh, they do lighting, all this kind of stuff that is not economical necessarily for an automaker to develop a gr an engineering group and a plant to focus on when they can have Magna do it. And they were and the, these companies like Magna, uh, some of their other competitors would be companies like Robert Bosch. Uh, just looking at the list, there's a giant Japanese company called Denso that supplies most of the Japanese automakers. Uh, you know, Faricia, Continental, etc. A lot of these companies you may or may not have heard of over the years. Uh, Lear, as we talked about, as a seating specialist. Uh, they work hand in hand as automakers develop new vehicles. Okay, we're going to have you make these parts. Uh, here is what we want. We'll do test batches. You know, the automaker will say, we expect to sell 50,000 of these a year for five years. Uh, so they'll scale up production uh, to match that and so forth. Just countless conversations. A company like Magna is an automaker's partner in all kinds of things. That's what to think of them of. As for size, uh, Magna does around 40 billion in sales a year. Uh, working with most of the automakers. So, you know, it's not General Motors size, but this is a, this is a big company. Um, and, and like, we, like I said, it's one of the suppliers that stands out for its investments and its momentum, its existing momentum going into these, these future tech, the, these future technologies that are suddenly not so futuristic. Right. It's, it's, yeah, to your point, John, I mean, just the auto industry is incredibly large and global, and these are multi-ton machines with lots of different parts in them. And some things that are, that are very simple can be very diff very complicated to execute on a global basis with a very, very narrow uh, range of variability and, and all those sorts of things. And, and so sometimes, you know, instead of, you know, making all, you know, gazillion parts that goes into into uh, you know the, the vehicle sometimes it can be simpler for the automakers to kind of outsource these to other other companies that are super focused um, on some of these areas and you know there's pros and cons uh, to bring bringing things in-house um, but, uh, but 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 that's kind of the, 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 the puts and takes there for, for these companies you talk about the momentum for magna and some of these opportunities I want to talk about that this joint venture they just announced with LG uh, how significant is that when it comes to this opportunity in, in electric vehicles and that sort of thing well it's another it's another you know, it's another marker they're putting down. It's another area where they can get into. Uh, they can work with LG, which is a giant 
South Korean supplier of batteries that has made inroads into the electric vehicle space among their partners are, since we've been talking about General Motors, GM. Uh, GM and LG jointly developed the batteries that are in, for instance, GM Chevy Bolt. Uh, LG manufactures them. GM owns their own chemistry. Uh, what Magna can help LG do is sort of package that into uh, their existing automotive relationships and into any new business where they might, for instance, like Fisker, uh, be helping to build the vehicle. Magna is also working, uh, just while I think of it, uh, with Sony, the consumer electronics giant, uh, which is toying with doing its own electric car. This is another situation where Magna can bring in LG to do the battery work for that vehicle, uh, incorporate Sony's uh, electronic special sauce, and then do the manufacturing in its own plant in Austria or, or elsewhere in Europe. Uh, you know, so, so this is an important partnership for them uh, that will help them win, they hope, more business from uh, both existing big automakers as they move more into electric vehicles, maybe some of the automakers that are a little more behind a company like General Motors uh, and are trying to catch up, maybe some of the smaller companies, as well as new entrants into the space, companies like Fisker and some of the other electric vehicle uh, startups that we've talked about here in the past. Yeah, and you know, you, you see this partnership w with LG um, and Magna, kind of you know, from LG's perspective, kind of plugging into this kind of auto supply chain relationship. Obviously, they want to sell more uh, automotive batteries um, and those sorts of things. We, we, we've seen some of that, whether it's these autonomous vehicle uh, makers partnering with with traditional OEMs, or, or this when you have, you have some battery makers part partnering with suppliers. Do you expect us that we're going to see more and more of this, of kind of consolidation around some of these new entrants um, or, or, or folks who are new to providing services in the automotive industry, kind of partnering up with, with these existing players in, in some type of way? Oh, absolutely. It makes it makes all the sense in the world. Um, all of these companies have been both partners and rivals at different points. They're used to working together. Uh, and and as they want to, as new entrants raise funds and want to spend it to make cars, you know, Magna, LG, companies like this, even, even some of the established automakers will be very happy who have advanced significantly with these technologies will be very happy to help for a fee. Uh, you know, GM does some of this on its own, in fact, but, but, you know, what, what this can do is, is help LG open more doors uh, because Magna can help package its technology in ways that it knows its existing automaker clients uh, will want, as well as when new entrants come to them and say, oh my God, help, we want to build this SUV. <laughs> you know, Magna says, okay, we know how to do that. We got your batteries right here from LG. We will show you how to package that and put that in. Uh, you know, it comes with the software, the control systems. Uh, we've got motors. You know, you can pick from these six motors, uh, four of which might be produced by LG and here are the performance characteristics and so on and so forth. And this is how these meetings go. Uh, it gives, you know, it, it's more on Magna's menu. It's more business for LG because Magna can funnel business its way effectively, uh, serve as almost a, a distributor for it, um, and and help get its batteries and other products into more cars. Uh, you know, we 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 can note that this LG Magna uh, joint venture is already working with Jaguar Land Rover, as we said before. Uh, Magna builds the Jaguar I-Pace and is expected to build or at least help build uh, emerging Jaguar and Land Rover vehicles. There's a, uh, an electric sedan coming, although COVID threw the schedule off. A year ago, I could have told you when all of this was coming, and now it's kind of difficult because uh, a lot of plans got thrown up in the air last year. Uh, some companies with big budgets were able to keep on track, but uh, Jaguar Land Rover, which is relatively small, not so much. Um, um, but again, this is something they're going to offer to both, you know, established 
automakers who want to get more into this space who may be feeling a little bit behind as well as new entrants. Uh, so there's going to be plenty of business here over the next few years. Right. So, so we mentioned that LG, uh, that LG partnership, um, um, Excuse me. So, so yeah, we mentioned that that LG partnership um, with Magna, that opportunity, this idea of hey, maybe maybe they could be uh, the Foxconn of cars. One thing on the other side of the coin, though, is you know maybe Foxconn is going to try to be the Foxconn of cars. <laughs> how, big, how big of a threat uh, could they be uh, to, to what Magna and some of these other suppliers are trying to build? Well, it's been interesting. Foxconn, uh, this market has certainly gotten Foxconn's attention to back up. Uh, Hanhai Manufacturing Company, known in the West as Foxconn Technology, uh, is a Taiwanese company that makes the iPhone. They have factories in Taiwan, in mainland China, and in various other places around the world. Uh, big contract manufacturing for electronics. Uh, they are moving more and more into electric vehicles. Uh, they, they recently... Uh, didn't quite purchase Byton, which is a struggling Chinese EV startup, uh, but but got into a, a fairly heavy partnership where Foxconn is kind of driving the bus uh, with them uh, to help build their crossover SUV the, called the M-Byte, an electric upscale crossover SUV that will compete, uh, they hope, with companies like NIO, uh, and Xpeng, and some of the other companies we've talked about on here, as well as Tesla in China. Uh, and then just this past week, they announced a joint venture with Geely, which is uh, one of the biggest traditional Chinese automakers, uh, really the only big Chinese old school automaker that isn't uh, or didn't come out of a state-owned business. It was a startup in, the, in I think, the 1980s. Uh, this is a company that owns Volvo cars. They own Lotus cars, the British sports car specialist. They own Proton, the Malaysian uh, manufacturer, if you've, you've probably heard of, if you've traveled in those parts of the world, Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, these are all Geely companies. Geely uh, sells a lot of cars under its own brand uh, and, and a couple of other brands in China. Uh, they're an impressive company. And, and you know, Foxconn is partnering with them uh, to do a joint venture uh, to share expertise and become, you know, the Foxconn of cars. And so this is going to challenge Magna in this space. I, I personally think there's plenty of room for both of them. This will be more Asia focused, whereas uh, Magna may be more North America and European focused in winning these kinds of business. But there will be crossover. Uh, again, there is plenty of room here, but that's another uh, partnership to watch closely if this is something that's of interest to you. Uh, certainly, uh, and just to kind of kind of bring things back around to kind of, uh, there's certainly going to be, be lots of folks trying to compete in this contract manufacturing space and this this supplier space. But Magna, being someone who already has a lot of these relationships in place and a lot of shots on goal when it comes to these joint ventures and, and working with some other partners, uh, should have a significant role in this market going forward. John mentioned earlier some of these valuations in the space. I was looking this morning on on Cap IQ uh, from S and P. Uh, you're looking at if you buy Magna today at 11 times forward price to earnings multiple. So when you compare that to, to some of these incredible price to sales multiples, you're paying for a lot of these companies out here today very reasonably valued and certainly in a position to take advantage of some of these opportunities. Yeah, around 10 times earnings is what you'd expect for um, an auto company in good times. And we're looking at one with some growth potential. Uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this is definitely uh, one place where you should put more attention. Like we said, there's value here. Yeah. So just know that's a forward earnings multiple. If you, if you punch in and you see the, the thing that gets spits out to you, usually it's going to be a trailing multiple. Obviously this year with, with COVID and all those sorts of things, lots of disruptions. And obviously there's there's puts and takes when you're projecting a forward multiple. But uh, but you know with all those caveats, uh, it looks reasonably valued. John, let's talk about this second uh, um, subsector, second company that you wanted to talk about today that's underfollowed in the auto space here in 2021. 
Uh, well, General Motors is hardly underfollowed by Wall Street, but I think investors have been overlooking it for a while. That might have just started to change, but I think it's still time to get in here. Uh, you know, why the heck would you buy dumb old General Motors when you could buy Tesla or Neo? And the answer is because GM's trading at something like at, at much closer to a traditional automaker valuation. It's it'll be quite profitable once we get COVID behind us. Uh, it was quite profitable before. It actually did quite well last quarter. Uh, and and again, this is another old guard company that has already made the investments, has already acquired the technology and expertise uh, to be very competitive as the world transitions to connected autonomous electric vehicles. Uh, you know, and 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 GM has already got scale uh, in the U.S. They've already got scale in China. Uh, they've got uh, a proprietary uh, electric vehicle uh, whole architecture of their own that they call Ultium, which is battery technology developed with GM that's a generation ahead, developed with LG rather, that's a generation ahead of what's in vehicles like the Chevy Bolt. Uh, you know, they, 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 it comes with motors that are optimized and, and it, it, as we say in the business, it's modular, uh, which means you can build a small car or an SUV on it. Uh, it can be two wheel drive, four wheel drive. It can have one, two or three motors if you want a high performance car on it. Uh, it, it you know, and they can use this and use software to infuse the different character of these vehicles into it. Uh, and, and, save a lot of cost and it's all developed it's it's all almost ready to go in fact they're going to start rolling vehicles out on it uh the new hummer ev which you might have seen uh some on that's going to come out later this year this is built uh with ultium with this new generation technology and there's much much more coming uh gm is also they announced just this week uh a new brand called bright drop which is uh, how they're going to carry this EV momentum into the commercial vehicle space. Uh, they're starting with an EV commercial van, again, built on Ultium, uh, as well as an electric sort of package moving pallet. And they developed this working with FedEx. Uh, and FedEx found that this, this electric thing, which goes three miles an hour and can carry up to 200 pounds, uh, really helped uh, their, their package delivery folks be more efficient, uh, deliver more packages more quickly because they could move stuff to doorsteps from the truck using this thing much more easily uh, and more safely too, instead of lifting heavy packages all day. Uh, this will help them with that. They are rolling these out. These, these products, uh, FedEx will be their first customer, and they're not just, oh, we made an electric truck, but it's connected, and the pallet movers are connected uh, using the cloud. There, there, there's a whole software platform that GM is rolling out with this that allows a fleet operator uh, not just to monitor where everything is, but what needs service, what's breaking down, what's you know what has issues, what needs an over-the-air update that we can push uh, using this platform, all this kind of stuff. And this is just one piece of it. Uh, more pieces are coming. Uh, Cadillac is going to lead the brand among their retail brands uh, into into electric vehicles. Uh, there's a beautiful Cadillac SUV called the Lyric electric SUV coming next year. Uh, several more on the way, including one they've talked about quite a bit, uh, mostly with teases and hints, called Celestic. C-E-L-E-S-T-I-Q. This is an ultra-high-end, built-to-order electric Cadillac sedan. They're going to build about six a week. Uh, mostly by hand in Michigan, bespoke, huge choice of, you know, interior uh, designs and fabrics of technologies and so on and so forth. They're promising these are going to be, you know, well into six figures. Uh, one of the questions that kicks around the auto business is, okay, you've had the Tesla Model S. Uh, 
you know, you're well-to-do, you're, you're an affluent customer, what do you buy next to move up? Uh, Cadillac might have the answer to that question, at least for people in North America and China, uh, an answer to that coming in a couple of years. I, you know, that's, that's, that's a drill down into details. To back up to the big picture here, uh, GM is spending $27 billion on electric vehicles. They're making a huge move. A lot of the technology is already developed. This is not just talk. It was talk three years ago, but now they've done the work. Uh, you know, and it's all coming out uh, over the next couple of years uh, as demand grows in both the U.S. and China. There's a whole separate China play that involves several electric Buick SUVs and so on and so forth. And because GM is out in front of a lot of the other traditional automakers, they have a chance to gain share and and you know gain bottom line profit, improve margins as well as they move into this. And that's what makes it uh, you know an intriguing investment play here. Yeah, John. So, so kind of like I asked earlier about suppliers. Obviously, GM is one of these significant automakers. You know, commonly you'll hear them referred to as OEM, so original equipment uh, manufacturers. Historically, this has been a you know has become a pretty consolidated industry. So, you know, there's Ford, GM, Chrysler in the U.S. You know, in Germany, you've got you know Volkswagen, BMW, a few players there. Uh, and you know, Tesla before this year, Tesla had been the only major automaker to, to come public in the U.S. in decades and decades and decades. Obviously, there was a significant change um, this year with all these companies uh, coming public. So why has the industry been so consolidated historically? And you know, what, how do you underwrite the chances for, for this to change? Uh, because scale matters. Uh, this is this is a business where the upfront costs are few, huge. You'll spend a billion dollars or more to build an auto factory and design the vehicle you're going to build before you ship a single car. Uh, huge sunk costs, huge upfront costs, huge fixed costs. Uh, you know you got to pay for that tooling whether you sell ten thousand cars or fifty thousand cars uh, this year. Um, you know, so scale matters. Uh, the more efficiency, the more economies of scale you can get. Uh, you know, the better your margins. Um, and also, if you use it wisely, the better your quality as well. Small companies have trouble uh, getting to global quality standards uh, because but the lack of experience and resources uh, hinders them. I, I mean, we've seen that with Tesla to add has, has had issues over the last decade with quality uh, because even though you know, they've brought in a lot of advanced manufacturing expertise. You know, it takes time to get the scale and the expertise and the manufacturing uh, refined to the point where you're delivering that. And as you get bigger, some of that gets easier in the auto business. This is why, uh, you know, in 1920, the U.S. had, I don't know, 30 or 40 automakers, uh, you know, and then by the 70s or by the 80s, we had three. Uh, and now we're seeing even further consolidation. You know, GM and Ford will probably stand alone, but even both of them have other major automakers as partners. GM has Honda as a partner. Uh, Ford has Volkswagen as a partner. Uh, Chrysler became Fiat Chrysler, and now it's going to merge with uh, Peugeot, which in turn is a bunch of merged French automakers, to become Stellantis, this merged transatlantic company. Uh, there's more and more of this going on. And again, it's because the scale, it's because of the huge investments they need to make to transition to these new technologies. Uh, it's done better when you do it over millions of cars rather than over thousands. That, that makes sense. So, so you know, we talked about that this opportunity as kind of GM is, is maybe a little bit ahead of, of some other folks, particularly in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to um, these traditional automakers. Obviously, they're not ahead of Tesla on adopting um, electric vehicles. But um, what are some threats to, uh, to to GM in this this transition? I know one one news item I've seen has has been this move you mentioned earlier, Cadillac becoming their their kind of flagship 
EV brand, having to, to have some negotiations with, with dealers uh, along with that transition. Can you talk about that a little bit? The dealers are hard. Uh, you know, I remember saying years ago that if te- Tesla could pioneer a direct-to-consumer model uh, and and bring that as the standard in autos, it would be a net win. And I don't say that to bash folks who are in the dealer business at all. Uh, it's just hard with some of these dealers uh, who like things the way they are and don't want to learn electric vehicles. They don't want to pay maybe half a million dollars to install high-speed chargers, uh, to buy the tooling and expertise, you know, train their, their people to work on this completely different technology from what they've been selling maybe for a hundred years now, uh, you know, through, through a lot of dealers, uh, are, family companies, you know, and maybe great grandpa was selling Buicks in 1919. And now, you know, you're selling Cadillacs and maybe some other GM vehicles. Uh, you know, all of a sudden this, this whole thing is changing. Uh, some dealers have trouble with that. Uh, GM has been buying out some of the smaller Cadillac dealerships that just don't want to do this, that don't don't want to go to all electric vehicles that don't want to develop the technical expertise and buy the expensive tools and make the investments they'll need uh, to sell electric Cadillacs the way GM really would like them to be sold, to offer quality of service that can compete not only with Tesla, but with the luxury companies that are coming into this space. Uh, it, it has already been somewhat difficult for these small Cadillac dealers to compete with, uh, for instance, BMW dealers. Uh, because there are fewer BMW dealers, so they sell more vehicles and make more money per store, and they can invest in the amenities that affluent customers expect when they come to buy a car. And if the Cadillac shop doesn't offer that, they have trouble attracting and retaining those affluent customers, uh, which in turn means uh, their pricing isn't going to they, they aren't going to have as much business at the prices they want to offer, which hurts their margins, which hurts GM's margins. So this all plays together. You know, if you want to get luxury profit margins, you need to offer a luxury product and a luxury experience. Uh, so, you know, one thing you hear from a lot of electric vehicle advocates is that that dealers, old school dealers, uh, are a challenge. And some of them will jump on board with this because the automakers will show them how it can be profitable for them. Uh, but we are going to go through a phase of resistance. And and that is that is a challenge. GM is addressing it. Ford is looking at ways to address it. Uh, you know, Ford, Ford uh, has rolled out its own electric vehicle and they had dealers sign up to be partners with that. Uh, they sold it a bit differently to the dealers. But even then, Ford is a mass market brand that that's hoping to offer, a, you know, an experience that that not necessarily compete with Tesla, but draw similar buyers. Uh, you know, people who have some money who can spend forty, fifty thousand dollars on a vehicle comfortably and are willing to take a chance on an electric vehicle. Uh, it, it, this is this is this is a big challenge. Uh, approached right, it can be an opportunity, I think, but we're all still figuring out how that's going to work. And that's another place that will suck time and money from somebody like GM that somebody like Tesla doesn't have to spend. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that this dealer model is, you know, that there's, there's pros to that. You mentioned there's already scale in place, a service infrastructure, all those sorts of things, but as well, you know, you, you have a, a consistency that you have to keep happy that, you know, makes money off of servicing on these traditional vehicles, those sorts of things. Um, so, so certainly a, a challenge to overcome. And one of those hurdles that, you know, these, these traditional automakers have that maybe these upstarts won't have to the same extent. Another one of those things um, that, that maybe folks think about is the dividend. So in, in 2020, GM suspended uh, the dividend 
and uh, they've given you know a little bit of hints about when they might bring that uh, uh, back on board. What are you hearing about that, John? And then more importantly, we mentioned earlier, they're going to be spending $27 billion on autonomous technology, on an electric vehicle technology over the next couple of years. Just from a shareholder's perspective, what do you think about them just reinstating that dividend versus keeping that cash to, to redeploy to some of these, these opportunities and investments they need to make in the future? Well, first of all, let's talk about timing. Mary Barra, GM CEO, said during uh, the company's third quarter earnings call that investors should think in terms of mid-2021 for the uh, dividend to come back, assuming that we don't take, you know, the economy doesn't take another significant downward dive between now and then. Uh, we'll get an update when they report in early February, the fourth quarter, I'm sure. Uh, I would expect it to come in in the second half of the year. Uh, GM's dividend will probably, they'll probably set it at a level that yields something like three to four uh, percent. It's traditionally been on the rich side, but not super rich. Uh, Barra has promised to set it at a level that doesn't hold back their investments in all of these future technologies. Uh, on the one hand, there is an argument that says, hold on to the dividend, spend the money. Uh, on the other, we point to the fact that their pickup trucks have been redesigned, their big SUVs have been redesigned. They were redesigned with margin in mind. Uh, GM did very well in the third quarter, having rolled out most of these products. Uh, the truck franchise, as, as we've talked about at Ford, uh, is going to help pay the bills for all of this. And, and they've figured out how to do that. A pickup demand for traditional internal combustion pickups uh, was very strong through the COVID mess in 2020. Uh, GM sold a lot of them. Now, some of that was because Ford was retooling its factories to build their new F-150, and so Ford's supplies were tight. So GM got a little bit of a jump on Ford. Uh, but there's no reason to think if the economy remains reasonably strong and people are continuing to shell out serious money for vehicles, uh, they'll be able to sell them for at least several years more. And yes, GM does have electric pickups coming. So does Ford. Uh, you know, they, they are thinking of those terms. Uh, there will be more and more electric vehicles coming into these markets that hopefully will preserve GM's share and margins as they go on. Uh, but the cash flow is good. Uh, it, whether they would have, you know, a significant advantage from holding back the dividend uh, for another few quarters. I don't know. I think we have to look at that uh, as 2021 plays out. Uh, I won't be surprised if they decide to go ahead and reinvest, reinstate the dividend anyway, because there are shareholders, including, um, you know, institutional shareholders who are looking for that. Uh, and, and, in the way of returning some of this wonderful cash flow to shareholders, as, as Barra often says, we have to return, you know, excess cash to shareholders. Uh, where the line is for excess, uh, I'm hoping GM will show us. Uh, and and this, is, this is something that, that GM is actually pretty good at, at explaining, okay, here is why we are allocating capital the way we are. Uh, it, it, if you're going to invest in GM, it's very good to listen to uh, not just their earnings calls, but also some of the uh, Wall Street presentations they do. You will learn a lot about how they think about capital. And, and they are, it, under Barra, they have been very good at it. Historically, GM was not very good at it. We have to add that footnote. <laughs> That's how they ended up in bankruptcy. But under Barra, they have been very good at allocating capital. Uh, we'll watch where they draw that line, but I, I trust them to draw it in a place that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. You know, I just said, you know, as we said off the top, I mean, to have, you know, one of the, one of the companies that's exposed to some of these trends paying a dividend, I think 7.7 .7 times forward forward earnings. So, so again, produce, producing cash flow, maybe not as exciting uh, uh, from kind of a new name, flashy perspective, but but there's a real business here um, that's that's producing some, some significant income. Um, or cash in any event. Um, 
John, kind of just last thing on GM, what's your biggest concern? What are you most worried about uh, for this company going forward? Um, what I worry about with GM, I think, is mostly that that they won't be able to hang on to their market share, uh, that there will be too many compelling new entrants, that they could fall a step behind. To be clear, I haven't seen signs of this in their recent efforts. Uh, I think they'll do well. Um but it's easy to point to the Chevrolet Bolt, which came out, and a lot of people said, oh, huh, it's just a little hatchback. Because uh, GM maybe didn't do a good job of explaining what the Bolt was, which is, you know, it's an urban taxi. It's a runabout. It's a test bed for us to develop self-driving and so forth. Uh, but then Ford comes out with the Mustang Mach-E, and everybody says, okay, we get that. We know what that is, right? I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's a very Ford-flavored take on the idea of a Tesla, an upscale, quick, fun-to-drive electric vehicle. Uh, whereas GMs, well, you know, they have a lot of things in the pipe, and it's coming. Um, what I worry about is that GM won't be able to bottle the excitement that people have around electric vehicles, uh, as well as perhaps some of the other old companies that are moving into this space. Uh, that that you know, and that won't that won't put them out of business, but it might hurt growth. It might hurt margins over time. We'll see how this plays out. Uh, certainly, looking back at GM's long history, they have been able to do it very well at times in their past. Uh, We'll see what happens here. I don't worry about GM, you know, going bust on any near or intermediate term time frame. The company's in extremely good shape despite the COVID, uh, you know, the losses and shutdowns and so forth from COVID. They're they're in very solid state shape. Uh, this company isn't going anywhere anytime soon, and they appear to have the technology uh, to compete and then some into wind share, uh, but it's possible it won't play out the way we all hope. And I, th I think that's the biggest risk. It's not so much that somebody else will put them out of business. It's that, you know, they won't quite stay competitive in the enthusiasm race. Yeah, so we'll have to see uh, what happens there. You know, you said it's possible things won't play out the way we expect. I think we have never been more aware of that uh, uh, than we are than we are today. But whatever happens, we'll be on the show uh, to discuss it, John. And I'll be looking forward to having you on again uh, next time. All right, thanks very much, Nick. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For John Rosevere, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs>